welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where Catholic truth is served fresh daily. We've made you a reservation in the luxurious corner booth, so come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. We got the band back together, we got... Venerable Tom Hello. is here, and we have Ziggy Rodriguez. That's me. And so, you guys, I'm glad we're all sitting here. And uh, Thanks we're for having us, Deej. Uh, you know what? It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, have a donut. Oh, yeah. better. <laughs> With sprinkles. Yes. Uh, so, today uh, we're going to have, a, a, I think, an interesting show, because really it's just a, an experience I had. And I I know that as I say these things... Oh, well, then you know it's going to be yeah, interesting. A lot, of, a lot of people have the same kind of experience. I know you've been sitting at Mass... I was at a daily mass, um, and uh, just you know, sometimes you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden you just hear something, just in a, in one of the readings, and sometimes like for me it's the Old Testament, and all of a sudden this image kind of passed went into my head. I mean, just and it's like I couldn't shake it. It was really a, a, a an interesting thing, and something that I I was familiar with the story, but I didn't really know uh, where you know that I'd never thought about it in this way, and, and the story is when the Queen of Sheba goes to visit King Solomon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the wise uh, Solomon, and I, it was just that reading, and and there's a part of that just like leaped out at me, and I it never happened before. I'm going to read that reading. Uh, it's from the um, uh, the first book of Kings in the tenth chapters where it starts, and it says the Queen of Sheba, having heard a report of Solomon's fame came to test him with subtle questions. She arrived in Jerusalem with a very numerous retinue and with camels bearing spices, a large amount of gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that she had had on her mind. King Solomon explained everything she asked about, and there was nothing so obscure that the king could not explain it to her. When the Queen of Sheba witnessed Solomon's great wisdom, the house he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his ministers, the attendance and uh, dress of his waiters, his servers, and the burnt offerings he offered in the house of the Lord, it took her breath away. The report I heard in my country about your deeds and your wisdom is true, she told the king. I did not believe the report until I came and saw with my own eyes that not even half had been told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. Happy are your servants, happy these ministers of yours who stand before you always and listen to your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has been pleased to place you on the throne of Israel. So, and, and it just, it goes on a little bit more where she's essentially, and then she ends up giving him a whole bunch of uh, gold and spices and that, you know, and, you know, double the size of the kingdom's spices or whatever. It's just like all this mm. stuff that she did. And the part that just that like resonated, maybe I heard it for the first time because you know your mind wanders at mass sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And what hurt me was like when she saw all this stuff, it said it took her breath away. Mm-hmm. And it and interestingly, the image that came to my mind when when that happened, it reminded me of when um, uh, one of the parishes I had been at before had a major renovation inside and redid all of their their altar, the sanctuary, they'd put stained glass up in the back and build a baldachin, and it was like all this beautiful, big stuff, right? And I was at the back of the church uh, one day, I think I was doing prayers, I don't remember, but it was not during Mass, I was back there in the back just sitting there, and uh, the wedding coordinator had brought um, a, uh, 
a young bride with her mother into the church to like to show the church. And they were in there for like 10 seconds and, and the bride, like she sort of gasped. Mm. I, I was in the back of this and she sort of like, you know, she had this like, she mm. took her breath and she said, um, this is where I'm getting married. That's what she said. So she had decided oh. that this is where she, based on seeing what she saw at this parish. It was mm-hmm. St. Louis Church in Memphis, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And, and she had this moment, and it just, I connected the two of those. And then my mind started going further. You know, and I also, I hear these things, I start like, in my mind, like, well, if I was preaching, I would say this, you know. And I would like, I just started thinking like, or I should say I started thinking, the Lord started helping me to think and realize that there is something beautiful about, uh, about how we do liturgy, about what we do uh, as Catholics that we shouldn't dismiss, that it makes a difference. It, where people might think like, does it matter where you get married? I mean, you know, if you get married, you get married, right? Whether you're getting married in a, you know, a plain chapel or whatever, it, you get, it's like, does it really matter as long as you get married? Does it matter where the Eucharist takes place or how uh, the Eucharist is confected? Does it matter what words are said? Does it matter what languages? Does the music really matter at the end of the day? Does all that stuff matter? Um, and what I started to realize at that moment was it mattered to the Queen of Sheba. Mm-hmm. It took her breath away. And the things that she pointed out, I, I love where it goes through this list. I mean, this is where Scripture is helping. Uh, us to see it because she was attracted by the wisdom, right? She was attracted by she'd heard, you know, Solomon, a, a man of great fame for his wisdom mm-hmm. and his great thinking and and pondering and 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 all the things he said, right? And so she wanted to go see that, just like someone might be interested in, like, well, I heard those Catholics got something going on. Let me go over there and see what they got going on, right? So she was drawn there, and then it says. Solomon's great wisdom, the house he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his ministers, the attendance and dress of his waiters, his servers, and the burnt offerings. I mean, think about that for a second, like the burnt offerings. You're thinking about like incense at mass. And you're thinking about, I love this where it talks about um, the attendance and dress of his waiters. I mean, this is like what they're wearing. And she was blown away by that. That's part of this image that she had. So like vestments at mass. You know, the beautiful vestments. And we sit and think, and for many, many years, and I, I don't want to offend anybody, but for so many years we've had, you know, our priests and deacons wearing like these kind of burlap-looking things with funky designs on them that are kind of ugly mm-hmm. in my mind. And some people might think they're beautiful, but I don't know that they take your breath away like some of the beautiful, uh, fine vestments that maybe come out of the earlier history of the church, you know, and... Uh, you know, whether you have like a regular uh, chasuble or a fiddle back chasuble or whatever, I, I'm not necessarily putting a, have a dog in that particular fight, but I do think that like the more ornate and beautiful, the more it takes your breath away. The more that's part of, you know, in the, in the service of the waiters, not just how they were dressed, but how they moved, you know, the liturgical function. And I suddenly started realizing that we as Catholics need to, kind of, we need to pony up. We need to start up in our game a bit and start to realize that what we do and how we do it, it makes a difference. It has an impact on people that is, uh, I want to say subconscious, but really it just goes right to the heart of our bodies. Uh, There's a great image of the church. It's called uh, the sacrament of salvation. That's what we call the church. Why? 
What is a sacrament? A sacrament is something that has an outward sign that connotes an inward grace, a saving grace that's contained within that outward sign. So all of our sacraments, like uh, anointing of the sick, you know, there's there's oil, a physical, but but what 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 it carries with it is actual grace. Mm-hmm. Same thing with baptism. There's water, an outward sign poured over uh, a person's head. You know, is a, a saving grace. Eucharist is bread and wine consecrated. And those outward signs are the body and blood of Jesus and, and connote an inward grace that comes to us. In the same way, the church is a visible sign. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is an outward sign. So it's a sacrament, right? It has a sacramental character. It has an outward sign. And what's within? Saving grace comes to us through the, the church in her workings and how she does things. So this, I'm sorry for the long sort of rant. But this is the experience I had sitting at Mass, uh, like on a regular weekday, and where the it's like other longer readings, the Old Testament readings and things that usually just pass over us. So here's a dumb question, and that is, so those signs, are those signs being, is that a communication to the people that are showing up, or is that a communication to God? Or both, or so what's going I, on there? Do you think? So I, you know, I, I think that's a great question because, um, like, it's kind of like who is this show aimed at? Right, right. Who's listening? Who am I trying to tell? This is important. I think first and foremost at the top of the list probably is Catholics, mm-hmm. right? So it's like the people that are there attending. It's like what we do and how we do it matters. And for us to say it doesn't matter is to say you know. It's the same thing as like having a dinner. None of it matters. Then. Right. Exactly. Well, at, at home, when you have a meal, mm-hmm. why don't we just have peanut butter and jelly every night? Mm-hmm. You could. You, you'd still be alive today if you had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day of your life. That's all you ate. It would be fine. Except there's something beautiful about a meal and how you have a meal and, and the people that are gathered around the table. But also to have... Uh, to spend a little time and maybe have a, a, a certain kind of meal and 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 varieties of vegetables cooked a certain way and maybe we'll have a steak on this night maybe we'll have lobster you know whatever and it's like you start to realize that that's all part of building and growing and uh, you know sustaining the family it's not just sustenance mm-hmm. right you've you've like watched the sci-fi movies where you know, you you eat soylent green or whatever instead of <laughs> it's people. No, uh, but it's like you know we we probably they probably could make some kind of uh, sludge that you drink that you consume that has all the nutrients you need to survive, and that's not life. Life is going to be the taste, the textures, and all that stuff in food. In the same way, Tom, I think that when we're talking to Catholics, y'all need to we all need to understand. That beautiful liturgy, beautiful furnishings, beautiful music, um, just all of that included with the scriptures, the message, and then ultimately the 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 sacrifice of the mass, the you know what takes place on the altar and what we receive. That that um, that that's all of that is is in a, is in a, is a big ball, and and we need to realize that like just like that blushing bride. You know, we need to start to pay attention to, like, how are we going to attract more people to church? I mean, churches aren't doing so well right now. All organized religions are kind of struggling, right? And and the reality is, I think the Catholic Church, you know, in, in modern times has tried everything except for being more Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, G.K. Chesterton famously, famously said that uh, the world will be saved by beauty. And it's interesting, you know, you hear that quote and you sit with it. 
And it might not be obvious what he means when he says that, but I think you're pointing us to what G.K. Chesterton uh, was trying to communicate. And if we look at what St. Thomas Aquinas says about beauty, uh, beauty, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's the joy experienced by the heart when the soul glimpses truth, right? And if we ground ourselves in that recognition of, like, uh, Bishop Barron often talks about that evangelization, you have to lead with beauty, that in the beauty they'll see goodness, and in the goodness they'll see truth, right? Our minds were, were created, you know, to have intellect, right, that receives truth. Like, that's the purpose of our minds. But sometimes... That's not the best place to start. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Sometimes people are ready and they want to be fed truth. But sometimes what you need is to have that the joy of the heart experienced first when your soul glimpses truth. And that's what beauty is. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you make that connection between the outward signs of beauty and the inward beauty, right? So if you have something that's just inwardly beautiful, that's nice. If you have something that's outwardly beautiful, that's nice, but it's kind of empty, right? Mm-hmm. But when you have something that's outwardly beautiful that essentially speaks to the inner beauty or reflects the, the, the inner beauty, that's where you start to see this thing as a sacramental. Yes. Right? And you start to view our faith as incarnational. The idea that Jesus, divine, would, that God would take on flesh – so spirit would become enfleshed, like in the physical world. And that's what we need to see the church as, right? It's something that is God-breathed, but that takes on a visible character. Well, and another thing we have to keep in mind is, you know, modern art. And I'm not trying to put down, you know, there's a lot of great works of modern art, right? But the, the fact of the matter is modern art by design, you know, in terms of its philosophical framework, it removes God from being the author of beauty it makes man the author it, it, it's it's the meaning that you make right when yeah. you see it the even the author's meaning is only a, a, a partially relevant it's also sort of oh i took this and this is what it means to me and it's a very humanistic way of uh of exploring beauty and of course i think that god can still anoint artists within that context and can create beauty uh, through those artists, but I think that we as a people and as a church, in addition to emphasizing the liturgy, we need, there were once upon a time, like in the Renaissance, artists had patrons, you know, and people like <coughs> uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, they actually, if you look at them, I think all of the, the great uh, artists like those I just mentioned were, were celibate. They lived their lives completely giving themselves to art. I mean, that was sort of their priesthood was making a sacrifice of their lives to bring beauty into the world. And, you know, now we have this sort of liberal economic framework where everybody's got to pay a mortgage and keep up with the Joneses and all of this stuff. And it can really choke the life out of somebody who wants to devote themselves to beauty. And there, there are things like Patreon and various other uh, alternative frameworks that people are trying to create to help support creators of sacred art but if we want to see our churches transformed and if we want to see the culture transformed by sacred art and by beauty anointed by god we have to pray for for those people that god is anointing to create sacred art and we also have to pray what can we do to help support them to invite a new renaissance 
right, of sacred art within the church so that G.K. Chesterton's, uh, you know, proclamation that the world will be saved by beauty may come to fruition yeah in our and, time. and i again i want to go back and and say <laughs> yeah I, I i think we should put up a qr code for everyone to be able to donate to their favorite you know sacred artist but more impo- as importantly you rightly point out there's this connection between sacred art and the sacred thing that it depicts yes and the place that it takes you that's what's important to me uh because i know there's been many um or at least I say that's what's important to me. That's what I'm talking about today, right? And and there have been so many uh, criticisms of the Catholic Church about how it's like this great warehouse filled with things that are that are valuable that they could, you know, sell it all and, and give to the poor and things like that. And there's like, you know, and I don't know about the the, the you do the number crunching and find out that like, well, if you sold everything, you'd feed all the poor for a day or whatever. I've heard all kinds of arguments. The point though is. You know, you don't want to get rid of that which is sacred because there's there is something that is not uh, involved in the uh, financial world when you're looking at something. It, its value is not specifically financial. Its value is inestimable because it's 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 connected to your spiritual well being, and it causes you to to it drives you brings you closer to God. It's not about the money of all the, the the great art works of art that the Vatican owns. You know, it's not about that. It's about what's on display and what it what you see and what you feel and where you're drawn and and the fact that you're coming closer to God. And there's been so many criticisms of the Catholic Church about it's just like this great big warehouse, like uh, at the end of Indiana Jones, you know, where they store all the expensive stuff, mm-hmm. you know, right, tucked away from the world. And that's not the case. Uh, and I love, uh, there's another image uh, that's given to us in uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the 54th chapter, you know, there's a, like a sort of a, a prefigurement of the church. And they're talking about uh, the new Zion. And, and what, what um, the, uh, Isaiah uh, writes here in the, let's see, this is 54th chapter, verse 11. And he, this is an image of the church. And this is the image of the church that he gives us. Uh, foreshadowing the church that is that is today, right? It says, O afflicted one, storm-battered and unconsoled, I lay your pavements in carnelians, your foundations in sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. Great shall be the peace of your children. In justice shall you be established. Far from oppression, you shall not fear. From destruction, it cannot it cannot come near. If there be an attack, it is not my doing. Whoever attacks shall fall before you. See, I have created the smith who blows on the burning coals and forges weapons as his work. It is I also who have created the destroyer to work havoc. Every weapon fashioned against you shall fail. Every tongue that brings you to trial, you shall prove false. I mean, this is like... This is like the the church that cannot be beaten down. But what is the image of the church, other than being strong and having the weapons that are forged by the Lord, is like sapphires and rubies and gates of jewels. Like there's something beautiful. And in that right there, when I see that, I sit there and think like, well, Isaiah is prophesying a church that has, uh, you know, a, um, I don't know, beautiful jewels sewn into vestments, uh, beautiful jewel-encrusted um, uh, uh, plates and dishes on the altar. Right. Right? You know, it's like it's more than just plates and dishes, right? Suddenly, 
uh, it's a it's it's a it's a beautiful um, table laid before it becomes an altar of sacrifice, and so these beautiful gold tabernacles, right. right? And you start to see these things that are of great earthly value, but their earthly value really is stored up in the fact that there's great spiritual value in them. Well, and you also pointed out the Queen of Sheba. She was also taken by the attendants and everybody else and how they were dressed. The and so movements I, and all the stuff they did. Yeah, well, I think in addition to that, it's not just on the the clergy and the acolytes, but also on the laity in terms of how we prepare ourselves, you know, in terms of how we dress for Mass and how we present ourselves to the Lord when we come on we come to Sunday liturgy. You know, when we hear the, the word modesty, a lot of times we only think in terms of, like, uh, sexually alluring clothes being prohibited and stuff like that. But if you actually look at what St. Thomas Aquinas teaches about the virtue of modesty, what it actually is is a virtuous regard for one's externals, right? Where your uh, virtuous and a virtuous interior life is reflected in you and your externals and how you carry yourself and, and, and decorum is a part of that as well. And so if we also, uh, you know, we've talked about art being properly understood as being authored by God. If we receive ourselves as authored by God and we present ourselves as God's children in the way in which we are dressed and we are we are putting effort into looking as good as we can as we come, especially to Sunday Mass, uh, to celebrate, I think that also can add to it. And the, the reverence by which we uh, share in the liturgy and the piety by which we kneel and by which we 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 worship him. I think that that's relevant too. Right. So things like you know you're not chewing gum, right? You're right. you're you're doing your best to pay attention. And I, even though this whole story came about because my mind sometimes wanders at mass, and we all have that temptation. And yet once we start to pay attention, we will start to the the Lord speaks to us through those scriptures uh, and through the movements and through all the beauty and through all the. Uh, the orchestration through, through every aspect of the mass, and that's why it's important. Now, I'm not saying that you, that it has to be a traditional Latin mass or that it has to be a Novus Ordo um, mass. I, I, what I'm saying is it has to be reverent and beautiful mass. And if we put all of our efforts into doing the best that we can in in um, uh, orchestrating this and putting this all together, and then we do the best that we can in receiving that which has been orchestrated for us, then good things are going to happen. You know, you mentioned also in terms of the liturgy, something that comes to mind is is music. And I heard a, a priest give an interesting reflection online not too long ago where he said, you know, classical music, that appeals to the intellect. A lot of this rock music and folk music and more modern music appeals to feelings, right? And he said, but... Something about Gregorian chant, which is supposed to have pride of place, according to uh, the Vatican II document, yeah. um, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, he, the point he raised is that actually Gregorian chant is it, it reaches the will. It takes the will and it lifts the will up to God. And God is the source of all beauty. So even if someone says, you know what, I really don't think of Gregorian chant as being in itself the most beautiful. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. But let it step into that space of Gregorian chant and let it enter your heart and lift your heart up to he who is beauty itself. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, I just I started listening recently to um, there's a guy named Paul Rose, um, up in the Northeast, who does uh, sing the hours podcast? Oh wow, I love it, and it's like he's uh, doing uh, that now. Yeah, as in okay. a, as a um, 
Well, as an ordained cleric, I'm uh, as a deacon in my diocese. I'm obligated to do morning and evening prayer, <clears throat> and what I've uh, the liturgy of the hours. And what I've found is uh, this podcast is is wonderful because and it's and it's got just the right of mix in it and it and he changes things up every once in a while uh, where um, you know sometimes he'll sing uh, like uh, he'll sing the Magnificat in Latin. In, mm. but, it, but the whole thing is chanted. The entire Liturgy of the Hours is chanted from start to finish. Uh, the reading, the responsory, uh, and it's just it's just beautiful. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out to, I don't know this guy, <laughs> but, uh, but you can find it. Uh, just go to Sing the Hours. It's a, you know, on, uh, it's a podcast uh, that this guy does, and he does it every day faithfully, a morning and evening prayer. Uh, and it's just quite beautiful, and it really helps me then, because I've been doing morning and evening prayer for like the 16 years that I've been a deacon, and the thing is, Sometimes you can just sit there and it becomes an obligation that you mm-hmm. fulfill, right? You read it. But this now, I'm able to have it when I can. I'm, I have it. I have I have it open. Uh, my wife, Bess, loves it. She keeps it. Uh, she told me to stop calling her Saint, by the way. But anyway, Saint Bess, she will <laughs> She will have her liturgy of the hour. She'll have it open. She's reading it as he's singing it. And it's just, you go, you just go deep, right? Oh, yeah. And then and, and he'll, he'll spice it up. He'll have Latin here and there. And we're now we're I'm starting to to learn the Pater Noster. We just noticed last night. It's like, hey, we almost know the whole thing now. Oh, wow. And I know there are people that are light years ahead of me. <laughs> I know they are, but I wasn't raised that way. Right. right? I was born in 1962, and all that stuff fell apart. And now I'm sort of like reclaiming some of that and realizing that uh, you know when he starts chanting Gloria Patriot Filio et Spiritui Sanctu, you know it's like I'm like glory to the Father. It's like and I know that now. <laughs> and for you those know? of us who might live close to a monastery, uh, or oh man, a go convent. and listen to their yes, vespers. You know, yeah, some vespers are beautiful, incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's beautiful. And and someone might say like, well, why are you over there praying in Latin? You don't even understand those words. It's like because it takes because it takes you somewhere else. Yeah, it takes you to closer to God, you know, and you're like listening. That's where that Gregorian chant. I, I agree, uh, you know. So there's something powerful about that. I think that that we we dismiss so easily. All of it matters. Yeah, and and I think it all it all matters. So, wow, that was a lot of stuff to talk about, but you know, it makes a difference. And let's just pray that the church continues to be this visible sign, the sacrament of salvation for all. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send him an email at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. Visit us on the web at thecatholiccafe.com. You can also find us on iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe, serving up salvation one cup of coffee at a time.